Hello again and welcome to another edition of Resistance TV. In tonight's programme, we're going to be discussing what's gone wrong with the British left. Where and why? Did it go so badly wrong? Why was the Corbyn project destroyed when hundreds of thousands were inspired to join the Labour Party by Jeremy Corbyn's policy agenda became the biggest political party in Western Europe? What happened to Jeremy Corbyn's commitment to Corbynomics? How did the anti-Semitism scam make such an impact when it was plainly pure poppycock? When and why did the left abandon class politics in favour of identity politics? Well, to answer some of these questions and some of your own, I'm delighted to welcome Steve Hall onto the show tonight. Steve's one of the co-authors of a brilliant book that was published, I think, towards the end of last year. It's titled The Death of the Left. People may have seen some of the uh, social media posts. I've certainly posted some stuff about it. And there's been a little bit of a flurry recently of uh, posting about the book. And it's definitely well worth reading. Anyway, welcome to the show, Steve. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Thanks for having me along. Yeah, good. Yes. Well, I'm really pleased that you've taken the time out because this is a absolutely brilliant book, I've got to say. But before we get uh, into some of the uh, details, can you just start, start really by explaining how you and Simon Winlow, who's the uh, co-author uh, of the book, uh, how you come to, to, to write the book, the, here it is, the, the, the Death of the Left, and why we must begin from the beginning again, which is very much what uh, we've been saying for, well, for the last couple of three years in reality. But anyway... Uh, yeah, just just tell us a bit about you know how how you sort of come to to write the book. Well, we're both from the northeast of England, and we experienced the industrialisation. Um, yeah. We experienced the Thatcher. Period. Well, I, I I did. Simon was a bit too young to to you know to understand what was going on at the time. But during the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, that huge shift from social democracy. And in the 1979, 80, well, we all thought that nice Mr. Ben was going to be the prime minister and we were going to inch towards this democratic yeah, socialism. And, I remember and, it well. Before the split in 1981, well, when Owen and the other three um, characters uh, split and formed the SDP, split the Labour vote, and then actually yeah. got in again. And we thought, well, the things are just getting worse. Experiencing deindustrialization and others was a pretty painful thing. Because we saw these huge thriving cities and, and, and industries all closing down one by one. We knew that the co industry would have to close down sometime, but it was so abrupt. Um, pits were closing down before they ran out. You know, people often say, oh, the Labour Party closed more pits. <laughs> yeah, they did, but they closed pits when the coal ran out, not, not, when, not yeah. when it was still late, you know. So this is oh, totally yeah. nonsense. You get better. So it was a very painful experience. We, we saw the left change at the same time, the left was changing. And um, I had a couple of horrific experiences meeting the sort of urban left in, in London and, 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 and uh, uh, Birmingham and other places. Uh, yeah. And unrecognisable people, people I didn't really understand. And Simon's from Sunderland. I'm from Newcastle, so the rivalries, the rivalries there. <laughs> well, there we go, mate. That's, that's, that's a kind of the left coming together, if ever there was a case of it. Yeah. It's very envious, envious of me at the moment, but um, I'm sure that I'm sure that'll change. At some yeah. point, uh, and yeah. um, we saw uh, Blair, of course, come in and really accelerate it. And your neck of the woods as well, of course, getting elected in the, just to add insult to injury, I suppose. Yeah, well, I was born in a uh, just outside a town called Concert, which was once Europe's largest. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, of course, Durham Coalfield was the third largest coalfield in the country. So we were industrial men, you know, and, and we saw the whole thing decline. And we were promised new jobs in, in you know, IT and, uh, and the new technologies. And they, this didn't happen. The, the, the areas depopulated to some extent. People moved out and they did do what Tepid said, get on their bikes and, and, and find work. Uh, and now um, places like Newcastle, Middlesbrough are very reliant on the universities as the main employers. And, and, and yeah. you know, that some of these places are shells, Chris. You know, they're, they're yeah. very quite depressing places. We never got the industry part. We didn't get the light industry part in the jobs. And most of the jobs that replaced when the, we saw the shift from an industrial economy to a service economy. But you see, you know, a lot of a lot of people on the right say, "Now, well, we've got you know good employment, but they're they're terrible jobs. A lot of them, you know, there's they're part time, they're zero hour contract, you know, selling each other ice creams and and tattoos. You know, it, it just you don't people don't have the pride in that sort of work that they once yeah. had when they were making ships and steel and that sort of thing. So Absolutely. we 
it was the experience of that, you know, of Simon's family, and and, and of course he experienced it. And, and we met in 1998 as academics. I'm an economic historian, sociologist by trade, but we yeah. both working in criminology departments. Don't ask why jobs came up. We took them, and and, and, and uh, we met in a research project in 1998. Yeah searching the nighttime economy because the nighttime economy during the Blairite era was one of the big employers, you know, people oh, yeah. night yeah. restaurants and all the rest of it. So we, we, we were paid by the Economic Social Research Council to research that, particularly uh, violence and policing in the nighttime economy because um, it, was, it was getting quite a bit rough in, in, in some areas. Yeah. No, so indeed. I wrote a few books about that, but we were always keen to write this book because we thought that we felt as though we had been deserted by the left. The left had done nothing to uh, even promise to um, repair some of the damage done by deindustrialization. So we had the, you know, we, our relationship with the left was rather fractious anyway at the time. So we thought we'd better work out how this happened because nothing we'd read at the time was satisfied us. We, we had lots of explanations yeah. about why the, you know, the left had to more or less gone down the neoliberal path. Um, yeah. uh, but we weren't satisfied. So we thought we'd invest with, with professional researchers and, and, and we're supposed to be uh, academics, intellectuals. So we, we thought we'd better do it ourselves. And I think we, I think you, you might agree, we uncovered a rather grim tale over, over the decades. You did. I, I, look, it's, I think it's a seminal piece of work, I've got to say. I'm not seeing anything uh, like this. Um, I kind of almost agree, I think, with every word that you've written as well. It's, it, it, you know, so in that sense, you know, it's, a, it's a real kind of, uh, I suppose, endorsement of, of, of my own thinking. It's wonderful to, you know, to see it you know, applied you know, with the academic rigour that, that you've done. But I was particularly pleased. I want you just to sort of say a little bit about your, your section in relation to the economy, because you've talked about modern monetary theory it's something that you know i was banging on about i mean i kind of discovered modern monetary theory probably about 2018 uh is when i came to it and then i met bill yeah. mitchell who's a kind of godfather of uh yes of, uh, MMT. Yeah. yeah good bloke bill uh, and also yeah. met uh, with uh, stephanie kelton who's written written another really good book called the the deficit myth and, and bill's book called uh, reclaiming the state and you know, essentially you know talking about you know, having an understanding of the monetary system, how it works, uh, you know, using modern monetary theory as a lens to understand the uh, uh, the way the monetary system uh, operates is an incredibly powerful tool, I think, for socialists. And when uh, Richard Murphy was advising uh, Jeremy Corbyn in his first leadership yeah. run, he was essentially, you know, applying MMT principles and it got it got labelled Corbynomics by the Blairite uh, former Shadow Chancellor Chris Leslie as, as a as a put down as a pejorative description, but it was quite a snappy uh, <laughs> snappy uh, sort of title for it, really. Um, so just say a bit about that, will you? Because uh, you know, I think it's you know one of the things we need to be doing. This is why I, I think this book is so important because, in a way, yes, it's depressing, but but it's also the point that you make about you know, as you say on the front, you know, why we uh, you know why we need to. I can't read it in the slides actually. But, why we must begin from the beginning again. Yeah. And part of that uh, beginning again is, is, is raising political consciousness. So one of the, the things I'd love to see consciousness being raised on is, is the economy and, and how the monetary system operates. Like, you know, Henry Ford said, if people understood how the monetary system operates, money and the banking system operated, there'd be a revolution by tomorrow morning. Well, I want to see that revolution, you know. So, yeah. so say a bit about MAT and, and what your thoughts are and where the left is and, and if you've got any views about why is that you know jeremy notionally sort of embraced corbynomics and then, sort of, yes. and then abandoned it he sort of embraced it now the story i have is that certainly richard was one of his advisors but his other advisors um, jonathan porter simon ren lewis and a guy called medway i think uh james, oh, james medway yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. well um, very hostile to him uh, these three, uh, the three amigos, as we uh, as it became known to us, were, were anything but MMT supporters. They were neoliberal. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. still um, were sort of believers in in Friedman's quantity theory of money. That if you print too much money, you'll cause inflation, and you'll put your children in debt for the rest of eternity, and we'll all go to hell, and and, and you know, it would be great national yeah. teeth, etc. 
Um, and, and they were um, Corbyn's main advice, certainly McDonald's main advice. I don't know if there's any tension between John and Jeremy. I mean, you probably know more about this than I do, but Bill had an audience with um, John McDonald. He was given 20 minutes to explain his, his economic theory and how it could be used by the Labour Party. The problem Bill had with it, one of the problems certainly, was that they were putting a limit on, on investment. I think it was 250 billion. I think they're doing the same now. Why put a limit on something, on, on investment? If you can invest in productivity, you can create more fiscal space for more public investment. But the problem is that neoliberals, the, they are, they're terrified of the idea of public investment crowding out private investment. Mm -hmm. um, MMT theorists know that they, they call themselves monetary engineers uh, and they know how the system works. I, I'm a member of a board discord group with a, an MMT economist called um, Neil Wilson, who, who's um, he knows he's an accountant. He, he's worked with the big banks. He's worked with, you know, the, the Bank of England. He knows exactly how this labyrinthine system of accountancy works, where money comes from. Where does money come from? It comes from the state. All money is owned by the government. It's created by the government. When a bank makes a loan, and the Bank of England have confirmed this, when a private bank makes a loan, they don't just lend out, you know, the savers' money that's, that they've lodged with them. They actually create new money. So when they make a loan, the Bank of England credits their reserve accounts with new money. So the other way to create new money is by direct public investment. Thing is, that's interest free, or some of it is anyway. But the banks want to, this is their business. They want to lend out money and charge interest. That's how they make that, 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 that's their business. So they are terrified of, of a portion of their business being taken away from them by public investment. And this is the American way of thinking. Everything should yeah. be privately. Um, but because um, the Labour Party have accepted this, Rachel Reeves went over, didn't she? Oh. Yeah, to get her instructions from walls from the yeah, wall. God. You yeah. know, and what they do is they create a huge scare story about inflation. The printing, well, actually, in, we all know now that, that Twitter is full of these neoliberal economists saying that printing money causes inflation. No, it doesn't. Rising prices, supply shortages cause inflation. Printing money is a reaction to that when people ask for wage claims because they can't afford to live. So these, these are facts, but you can't get these facts across to people because neoliberals over the past 40 years have created these huge scare stories. They're grim tales about what inflation, we all remember the Weimar Republic in Zimbabwe yeah. and Venezuela, and they, they, they cite these things. But, you know, we're not in the same situation as the Weimar Republic was after, after the First World War. It's ridiculous. Well, their productive capacity had been absolutely decimated, and the French went and occupied the Ruhr Valley, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, the, the yeah, engine no, room of, of the German economy. And they owed huge debts in a foreign currency. Yeah, well, the reparations and all that malarkey. Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So you've absolutely. got, of course, like the same with Zimbabwe. When when Mugabe gave the farms to his war veterans, they didn't know how to farm. So they thought the farm no, production. No, precisely, precisely. I mean, I think Bill Mitchell that you mentioned, I mean, he's covered this in, in his regular oh, blogs. He's, some, he's someone yes. else who's worth following on Twitter, Billy Blog, at Billy Blog. Well worth the following. Um, they're great, and they know their stuff, and, and I dip in. I, I'm an, you know, I, I'm not a, an accountant. I, I, I'm not a, a, a macroeconomist. I'm a, I'm a historian, stroke sociologist. Yeah, uh, I understand what they're talking. The problem is nobody else does, Chris. No, but I do think uh, people are increasingly waking up to uh, the opportunities that an understanding of the monetary system, an understanding, you know, of of, of MMT, using that as a lens. That's uh, true. But, but the problem yeah. is, yeah, it's so complex. And, and uh, you know, if you read Bill Mitchell's blogs, I know the Billy blog and the new Wayland that Neil writes, and they're great people, but the, it's it's politically naive to think that people are going to follow this story. Oh, yeah, no, indeed. Although I think your book, to be fair, I think you've broken it down in a very uh, uh, manageable and accessible way, to be honest with you. What, so, we so honest what we need is a political movement, a political yes. party, to put a political message around this it's got to be a simple comprehensible message i think Very much so, yeah. Kelton did the best with her book the deficit myth to explain yes she did she did she's a great raconteur yeah she's really very good you know it, it, she popularized it quite well we can direct invest in anything we want energy mm. postal service transport 
agriculture, you name it. We can do, I mean, she's doing it every day over in, in, in China. Mm. Putin's mm. doing it now. I'm not saying we should, we should copy Putin everywhere, but, but they're no, no, but I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, direct yeah. investing and, and Chinese, uh, you know, have 250 mile per hour trains now. You know, where the Americans. That's right. Uh, uh, absolutely. I mean, it's falling yeah. apart. I know. Yeah, well, well George Galloway was talking about this on the Moat Show well, the other day, yeah. and he said uh, yeah. the yeah. Uh, the Chinese in the last 40 years have built a million bridges, and uh, yeah. the you know while, while the bridges in the United States, their infrastructure is totally crumbling, falling down. And yeah. the only American po politician to uh, be um, shooting this line at the moment is Robert Kennedy. Yeah, and, indeed. Yeah. Uh, between you and I, I don't think Kennedy's going to win. You know, but but. Um, no, yeah. no, no, he did. Although he's got some dodgy views on some other areas. On, on he has exactly. But yeah, yeah. I suppose you have to be thankful for small mercies. But, but definitely, this this is this is a great. I mean, and it's a great entree to the bulk, and indeed, you know, and a great entree into MMT. So you know, if for no other reason, people should get this book and read it because you know, it really is a great way. I think of raising political consciousness but i'm just conscious of the time and i just want to obviously get into a few other things yeah. and, and then see uh bring in uh sean because there may be uh, some comments and questions possibly from, yeah. from the audience but obviously you've covered i mean we'd not be able to get into all of the book uh today but i mean you've talked about i think one of the chapters that the rise and fall of, of left-wing uh populism um just say a bit about that really because i mean you know i'm very much i mean i remember uh what's his name tristram hunt going on about you know when jeremy was um uh, in pole position to win the leadership, saying, "Oh, we're in danger of turning into a, a left-wing populist party." I'm thinking, "Well, Christ, that's what we want to be in it, you know? Politicians want to be popular. What's wrong with that, you know?" But it's a bit about that. Then they're kind of rising full left-wing populism, can you? Yeah, Pop populism is the bet noir of the of the PMC, the professional ma managerial class, the tech yeah, class yeah. who control. The economy, who, who control education and all of the other uh, vital institutions, who you know regard people as—I mean, even George Orwell. You know, you can read George Orwell and the last yeah. or Aldous Huxley on the right. That they, they basically regard people as a stupid bovine herd who really don't know uh, what they want and 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 um, they don't know who they're voting for because they don't know who they're doing. The worst technocrats, of course, are the banking and tech technocrats who argue that they know how the economy works and leave it to them. And populism is, is this dangerous, headless creature that can go, that can be susceptible to demag demagogues like like Hitler or Mussolini. You know that that can be persuaded by the far right to to go down that line. Well. Populism, that's simply monster, uh, um, monsterizing the term. Populism was never about that. I mean, the American popular, Populist Party in, in, the, in the 19th century, Roosevelt was uh, accused of being a populist. Now, and Iron Bevan was accused of being a populist. Less so climatically, because as you know yourself, he was a sort of backroom fixer who got, got, every, got everything done. But every time democracy starts looking, you know, looking like it's going to burst through when when the technocrats fail, and by God, did they fail in nineteen ninety in in, in two thousand and eight again, didn't they? You know, they failed so badly. Um, the technocrats suddenly, you know, people thought, well, the technocrats don't know what they're doing. The great financial crisis, austerity was the only answer they had to it. We must suffer, ordinary people must suffer, rather than investing in the economy, lowering interest rates, doing exactly the opposite of what the neoliberals wanted, uh, did. And the technocrats failed. So when the technocrats fail, and they fail regularly, all the time, we've seen it, you know, we, every 20 years or so, they crash, they fail. Uh, and, and people look as though they're going to, to um, you know, rise up and do something about it. They're terrified of the wrong people getting a hold of this headless political energy from coming up, welling up from below and turning, in, and, and turning it against them. So the people are their enemy. They, they hate the idea. To me, populism is democracy minus representation. You, you, get, you, you find proper representatives, people who do represent the people. And we have those people in 1945. We had a few of them left right up through until the late 70s. We had, you know, politicians. And I think you're one of them. You know, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your backside or anything, Chris, but I think you're one of them who represented people, who understood the needs of working people. 
throughout the history of, of, of the British left, the, the British left, uh, you know, from the, the late 19th century, from the Charters through to the Fabians, right through to the Christian Socialists, Tawny and the rest of the 1930s, were basically taken over by middle-class eccentrics. Yeah. Now, there were nice enough people, or some of them were, some of them were eugenicists. Oh, yes. Yeah, some Absolutely. of them were the simple people um, euthanized and, and, and yes. sterilized. Yeah. And that was their attitude, you know, if you, if you yeah, read no, books like Carey's, yeah. The Intellectuals and the Masses, read some of the outpourings of the Bloomsbury group of Aldous Huxley and, 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 and Sidney Webb and, and you know, H.G. Wells and all the rest of these people. They have to hold the working class in contempt. Yeah. The very idea of having working class people represent themselves in Parliament and mm. get their hands on the tiller of the economy and the educational institutions and culture terrifies them oh totally i mean one of the reasons i was attacked obviously the uh the zionist lobby got their teeth into me but the other thing was of course the uh, democracy campaign that i was waging inside yeah. the labor party uh the campaign to get open selections adopted as, as formal party policy unfortunately you know jeremy blinked on that one as well and persuaded the trade union delegations uh, that were going to vote for in favor of it indeed the unite delegation it was their policy the Back to policy of mandatory reselection in 2016, and then Len McCluskey led his troops to actually vote against the proposition in 2018 at the 2018 conference. Mm -hmm. And it would have been because the votes, as you know, are split 50 50 now on the conference floor between the CLPs and the trade union delegations. The CLPs were over 90 odd percent in favour. Um, and this was reflected as I went around the country, you know, huge meetings, not as big as what Jeremy got, but huge meetings, very energetic, very. Yeah. enthusiastic people genuinely felt we're going to get our party i'm not necessarily back but we're going to get it for the first time and we're going to be able to make a real difference i mean one of the things i used to to quote steve was um was uh, ed Miliband when he was standing for the leadership in 2010 um he never followed through on any of the stuff that he was sort of saying it was a fairly modest mediocre stuff in any event but he, anyway he, you know he lost his way almost immediately as soon as he got in. But one of the things he said was that if we'd listened to our members more when we were in government, we wouldn't have made as many mistakes. And again, something I've often said, you know, so there'd be no war in Iraq, or at least there's no British involvement in the war in Iraq. There'd be no tuition fees. There'd have been a proper industrial, you know, strategy. We wouldn't have, you know, continued the privatisation agenda and so on and so forth. And, you know, they were just desperate to to stop me. I mean, all sorts of uh, dirty tricks were were oh, deployed. Go on, sorry, sorry, Steve, yeah. The late 1970s, when Peter Shaw, um, who was actually a centrist, from, he wasn't he wasn't known as a, as a left. No, no, he wasn't, yeah. Peter Shaw and Tony Benn yeah. wrote the best Labour manifesto I've ever read, using yeah. North Sea oil revenue. Not that they needed to do that, according no, to no. them. It doesn't matter. No. People can understand that. You're using yeah. rev revenue. They don't understand yeah. the idea of money creation by the state. To be honest with you, Steve, I don't think most of the politicians. I don't think most of the politicians do either, though. That's, that's no, they, they haven't got a clue. But most of the members you're talking about are very important. I agree with you. But underneath the Labour Party members are the ordinary people, the swing mm. voters, the, yeah, the, yeah. the undecided, the, the people you have to attract. I mean, Nicholas Luhmann, the, the the German sociologist, put nicer, and he said politics is one of the few things that is run on a simple binary. Mm. You're, you're either in or you're out. You're either in power or you're out of power. And if you're out of power, you can't do anything. Yeah. And the trick of how to get into power without pandering to some of the worst elements of society is, is the hardest trick of all. And to be able to do that, you have to be incredibly coherent. You have to show solidarity amongst, amongst the MPs, amongst the representatives. You have to show that, and that solidarity obviously wasn't there. Reading your book when, when you talked about these um, Labour Park headquarters apparatchiks uh, sticking the knife into everyone. It, it just doesn't exist in the Labour Party. That, no, that, it that doesn't. Sort of coherence that you need in order to get a message across to people and say, look, this is what we're going to do. We understand your problems. You're insecure. You've got crap jobs. You want families. You want to be able to plan for the future. You want a house. You might want to buy your own house, or at least you want somewhere they can rent where you can afford in a decent place that, that where the services work. Where, where the policing is adequate, where the bins are emptied. You know, these are simple things. Working pe people 
of very practical people. I come from the heart of the working class. My dad was an industrial yeah. plumber. Simon's dad was a crane operator. Mm. I, hope I haven't done Alan down there. I think he might have been something I'd done, but I think something to do cranes anyway, Coles cranes. And we have fairly simple needs. We're more complex people culturally than those simple needs, but those simple needs always come first. And if working people don't think that those simple needs are going to be met by politicians, they won't vote for them. What they'll, oh, do, absolutely. What they'll do is they'll vote for the least worst. This is what we call yeah. negative politics in the book. They don't vote for the Labour Party because they're just Labour politicians. They vote for them because they're slightly, slightly better than the Tories or vice versa. I'm negative not even sure that's true anymore, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> So I'm not even sure that's true anymore, really. I'm you know, sure, no, I think that the, the Labour Party, when it gets in, I think I think it probably will, will probably tarnish the name of the left forever. So I think our book might have been the last rights, and they'll come in and they'll bury the left forever. Because oh, well, yeah, you know, absolutely. Well, it's certainly far worse than than Blair. And I think that's because, you know, Corbyn, Jeremy, he, you know, frightened the horses, really, because he got so close. And, uh, they, you know, obviously they determined not to let that. I mean, and I know you were talking about, you know, you need that coherence. And that wasn't there. But even without that, we got the biggest increase Labour in vote share since 1945. And, uh, you know, we almost got over the line. But part of the problem was, and one of the things I was so passionate about the democracy agenda was, as I said to Jeremy, look, Jeremy, if we win with this shower of shite that we've got in the Parliamentary Labour Party, we won't be able to deliver our programme because they'll sabotage you. So we've absolutely got to get these democracy reforms through. We okay. want to get rid of some of them. We've got to give power to the members to get rid of some of these shitbags, if I can use that term. And, it's your um, show, Chris. It's your show. <laughs> and, and, yeah, well, they do. Uh, and have the sort of Damocles hanging over the, uh, the remainder of, of them so that they would you know, have to have some respect. Because at the end of the day, the programme that Jeremy was putting forward was incredibly popular with the vast majority of the public. But in the book, you go on and, you know, you talk about the, you know, the new left and uh, you're pretty oh, scathing, actually, about the new left. And um, they've kind of, you know, abandoned class uh, politics. Well, that's you, that's you, you, just say a bit about that. Say a bit about that. Yeah, that's a horror story. Uh, I think the watershed was 1968. Um, the left, let's be honest, I mean, we've written about this in, in other articles too, the left has never been run by the working class. Yeah. We've had representation, but we're always stopped from, I mean, even Noiran Bevan wasn't prime minister. He wasn't allowed yeah. to, to be on the, on, on the actual top seat. We're never, it's the same in academia. It doesn't matter how clever you are, Chris, they never allow you to run the show because they don't want your values and they don't want your knowledge and your experience um, uh, be, being the leading influence in any institution. Mm. They have their own visions, they have their own um, values, and they have their own history, uh, and they have their own culture, and, and they want to remain in charge. Uh, and the professional managerial class, these PPE graduates, you know, it's politics. Yeah. They, go to, they go to Oxford and learn politics, philosophy, and economics yeah. in three years. I mean, great, uh, you know, three years. I mean, honestly, you know. And they no, come parachuted into safe seats. I think, you know, we, we just had a couple uh, lately, haven't we? Um, yeah. and, and they just carry on that that tradition. We, we've never, uh, they don't want us in charge. It doesn't matter how clever we are, it doesn't matter how good we are. I mean, I don't know if we have any work. I mean, there's Ian Lavery, I, I know. Have we, I do, are there any more left in the Parliamentary Labour Party? Any, any working, genuine working class? John, John, John Trickett, I guess, John was, uh, was a poor man. Yeah, yeah. there, there are one or two, but the problem is, though, uh, Steve. Small handful. A small handful, yeah. The trouble is, though, that you know they're not speaking, not, not voluble enough, you know. But you, you mentioned 1968. You were saying, you know, that it was well, sort of it all, it, well, it all changed because um, up until 1968, the left had been firmly focused on economic management. Um, the neoliberals um, had made a well, the old classical liberals that had made a terrible mess of things in 1929. The whole thing crashed, hit the ground. The results were horrific. Um, we saw what happened in Germany, in, in Italy, uh, and, and then the Second World War was, was this, the, the, you know, it, it was such a terrible thing that people said, never again, let's try to manage the market. Now, social democracy isn't socialism, so it's not the aim, but it was a good platform. 
on, on which to build it. Just think of what they did. They nationalized huge industries. They set up state-owned relations pension system. They set up a national health service. They yep. set up sick pay. They made incredible changes that we've never we've never seen the, 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 the like of since. You know, people talk about the 1960s, the day of the change. It's nonsense. So there was steady economic management. They were kicked out in 1951 because of austerity. The Tories promising yeah. that they would bring us in. They always do. But the Tories, the programme was so successful, the Tories had to carry on with it. They, they laid down something yeah, yeah. That, that was, that was in, almost indestructible at the time. And you know, I, I was brought up in the 1960s. It was a fairly happy decade. It was a, it was the swinging 60s, and things were just going to improve. Howard Wilson, oh yeah, well, we have similar generation, absolutely. That you just yeah. you know the boomers people I think rather envious of us, and, and, and you know because we had the hope and the optimism. Okay, yeah. so French 1968. There's this set of riots across the country. It's nothing like the French Revolution or anything that was there. But it was a riots. The French intellectuals, Pierre Victor, Michel Foucault, and all the rest of these people, Leotard, all went out to the Renault factories in the fields to try to get the workers on side, and they decided that they didn't like them. Mm. They were all drunken Catholics. They were quite nationalistic. Well, France is nationalistic, so it's a republic. They're very proud of the, the country. Yeah. And they sing the Marseillaise, don't they? The rugby matches. Yeah, football matches. Yeah. yeah. And they're very proud of their country. They said no. At that point on 1968, the intellectuals, the French intellectuals, stopped being Marxists and Maoists and all the rest of it, and they became what were called post-structuralists and post-modernists. They decided the working class was no longer the agent of history. Their ideas spread throughout Europe, and America took them on board. Now, the American counterculture already made a mess of left-wing politics, with all their stupid beatnik and hippie visions, the libertarian hippie visions, which had nothing to do with the management of the economy on behalf of the working class. It was all about freedom and, and, and this, this sort of bland, abstract notion of freedom, meaningless notion of freedom. And so these ideas were taken on board by the Americans and the post-structuralism became the thing in America. It spread what we call, what, um, what, what was his name? Uh, Rudy Dutschke. Um, uh, said one of the German radicals said that post-structuralism began its long march through the institutions, through the schools, the education system, into politics. It's now even in the health service we see, we see post-structuralist identity politics in the health service. The working class was no longer fit to be the agent of history because it was deemed to be racist, sexist, regressive, drunken, Catholic, whatever. And we, yeah. we, we, we weren't good enough. Uh, and really, this was a continuation of the Bloomsbury Group's notion of the working class in the 1920s. We've never been good enough for, 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 the, for the middle class. We've never been good enough, never been trustworthy. So these ideas spread. And now we have whole generations weaned on the idea that the working class, class is a failed, I call it a failed analytic. It doesn't exist. It's just one identity in the intersectional matrix of race, yeah. sexuality, gender. It's just one more thing. It's not the, the, the it's not the, 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 it's not a structural, um, yeah. it's not a structural thing in itself. It's simply one more identity uh, amongst others. And, and these yeah. ideas spread, and, and these ideas now control the whole educational institution through secondary yeah. school and the universities. You mean you're, you, you know you're, you're obviously very scathing in the book, quite rightly, about uh, the impact of neoliberalism. But um, the, the, you know you also cover uh, quite extensively how this kind of new left sort of em embraced neoliberalism and uh, and and how the kind of neoliberals thought you know embraced the kind of new, new left. This whole identity politics has been embraced. I mean, I've spoken about this before on this show about the uh, the obscene spectacle of um, of Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. Um, marching in the pride marches in uh, in the states with 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 big banners, you know, you know, Lockheed Martins. But what the? I mean, <laughs> so say a bit about that. I mean, how is it? How did it come to this that you know you've got the left embracing neoliberalism? 
Raytheon and Lockheed Martin don't give a shit about gay people or, or, or women. No. Don't give a damn. But what it does is it, it, it is that it squeezes class out of the picture. Yes, of course. Now, what they realised in the 1970s, I don't want to sound like a, a wacky conspiracy theorist, Chris, but the CIA and the intelligence services were observing post-structuralism. There's the documents now which, which are now... Um, out of embargo, which read, which said, "This is a great development for us post-structuralism. This is wonderful yeah. because yeah. they're pushing class out of the picture. Let's encourage this." So the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the two um, big funding research bodies in America started pushing identity politics as anything to get rid of the notion of class. So we're useful to neoliberalism in the sense that we marginalize marginalize class better than they could. When they tried to marginalise class, it always looked as though that was, you know, this was simply a, a, a classism. This is a way of, you know, this this was a way of, of attacking the working class. What we do it ourselves, it looks like we're doing it for the right reasons, mm. and we're doing it because, uh, you know, there are other important and, and these identities are important. We can't you can't say that racism and, and, and sexism yeah, no, are not important issues. Of course they are, but the whole thing was too easily absorbed into the yeah. neoliberal uh, political structure. Uh, and they simply use it to um, convince us that we're living in a free, democratic and progressive society. Nancy Fraser, the American feminist, called it progressive neoliberalism. They've taken on board progressive identity politics. And look, yeah, they own the papers, they own the mass media, they're, you know, they're funding all the research in the education system. They've got the money. And the communications technical technology put this across. We haven't. We've gone, you know, yeah. we added to this little stream here on YouTube, which I hope loads of people are listening to. But they, 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 they've got a global reach. They've, got the, yeah, they've yeah. got the ability to put this sort of stuff across. So they become the champions of progress. Neoliberalism yeah. has convinced people. And we walk straight into this. Michel mm -hmm. Foucault, one of my pet hates, the, the French... Uh, Philosopher inverted commas. He was actually a failed, failed psychology exam again in university, so became a fake philosopher. Uh, in, in in the nineteen eighties, he was dying. Uh, the nineteen eighties died. He died quite early. Uh, he, he, was, he said, "Look, let's give neoliberalism a go, because the yeah. market looks more democratic than the state could ever be." <laughs> now, the, <laughs> the market is democratic. Now, this is what the Americans will say now. The market is democracy. You get Martin Wolf commenting on, on um, the, the problems of, of, of democracy. He calls it democratic capitalism. That's his name. He uses democratic capitalism. It's, they mm. think it's a true meritocracy. They think it's a market. People play the market and the winners succeed and the losers lose. Yeah. That's better, they say, than having a state uh, which is capable of the horrors that we saw in the 1930s and the 1940s. So they play on this all the time this will happen if we have the state back if the state becomes the economic manager we're risking the return of nazism and fascism mm, yeah and they've got that story off to a t and then they could yeah. bring inflation and debt and deficit into it all oh, yeah. this would you know they've got it off to a t what we haven't got is is, is a counter narrative we haven't got a movement willing to construct a counter-narrative that is powerful enough to dislodge this and, and to show the nonsense that it is. Um, yeah. and MMT can't do that. MMT is um, would be great to have on board as economic advisors, but MMT can't construct that narrative. The nearest no, no. MMT is just a tool, isn't it, at the end of the day? It's not an ideology. It's a neutral in that sense. I mean, it can be applied by the right just as much as it can be. Yeah. By the by the left, yeah. As far as Ian Mitchell's reclaiming the state, which I think you you know, but again, it, it's it's a great book, and I know Thomas Fatsy very well. He's he's yes. a very good writer. Um, yeah. it, it's it, it's again, it's it's overly common. It's like ours. I mean, ours is not a you know, we're not going to change the world with our book. We're we're just trying to get through the to the um the people who are already already politically engaged to try to 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 suggest that we try to create coherent counter-narrative based around economic management and public investment. We're moving into the fourth industrial revolution. The world's decoupling. The BRICs are now amassing a, a, a new trading block. 
Um, the West needs to reindustrialize. We need to go down the green route, although we don't need to scare people to death with Extinction Rebellion and, and degrowth and all of these silly names and, and go out into the streets and stop the traffic. That's, that just puts people off. It deters people. What we need is a, is a narrative um, that puts people at the front of it and it says we can move down, it, we can move into a new fourth industrial revolution. We can have cheap, clean energy. We can have jobs uh, that mean something, that are fulfilling and secure. We can strain things up and we can do that quite easily using public investment. We need a mixed economy. We don't want the state running everything because, again, that would scare people to death. Um, and, and the state can't run, run everything. I mean, you probably know as well as I do the stories about Gosplan trying to run a huge economy from an office block in Moscow in the 1960s and 70s. It just didn't work. So no, you, need, you need some private business, a small, medium private business. You don't want the state running your local cafe and your local pub, you know. It, no, it, it, and I think yeah. you can encourage cooperatives as well, small-scale exactly. cooperatives and things yeah. like that as well, you well, know. So, I mean, you, you shouldn't push them down people's throat. If people want to set up cooperatives, let them, if they want to set yeah, up. Yeah, no, indeed, but we should provide the, you know, the infrastructure, to, if you like, to, to make, you know, it, make, that, yes. make it possible for people. But, no, yeah. no, totally agree with that. I mean, but yeah. look, you know, Mal said, look, you know, even a journey of a thousand miles starts with a solitary step. And, and I think this book is very much more than that solitary yeah. uh, step. And, you know, as far as building that or, you know, creating that counter narrative that you talk about, I totally agree that we need to, to do that. The Labour Party is a lost cause. The left is kind of all over the bloody place. There are some of us who are trying to, you know, bring people together as best we can. Very difficult. The whole identity politics is, is getting in the way. And, Oh, you know, you've said something about trans rights to so Europe, bloody persona non grata, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, but the Workers' Party, I think, are, are attempting to, uh, you know, create that counter narrative. Still a small acorn at the moment, but but they're doing that. We're, you know, workers, I mean, I've joined the work. We've resisted, we've joined the forces with the Workers' Party. We're also working, collaborating with the Trade Union and Socialist Coalition, another, so, you know, relatively yeah. small setup, as you will recall, by Bob Crow and, and obviously Dave Nellis. Dave is still the, the, yeah. the chair of it. So, so, you know, there is that. I mean, and we've seen you know, there is an appetite. We saw the local elections, you know, for, for alternative voices. And if I think we can get our act together, then I do think there is scope. I mean, there was a poll. We've talked about this on the show before as well earlier this year. Uh, it was carried in The Independent, which said, uh, you may have seen it, Steve, uh, two out of three Britons would like to see a new party emerge to take on both the Tories and the Labour Party. So, so there is, you know, straws in the wind. I mean, so we shouldn't be, too, I mean, and you've talked about, you know, the importance of, you know, beginning again, and we do need to, to do that. But I just want to, just before bringing Sean, one of the things that, the, you know, the new left sort of sneer at is that, and you, you've got a big section on this, and I really enjoyed this section, actually, the whole okay. issue around the politics of nostalgia. Just say a bit about that, really, will you? And, and then I'll bring in Sean just to see what kind of reaction yeah. we'll be getting from people who want well, another thing, the, the, the you know, bad move the new left made was trying to condemn the past as a, 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 as a, a hellish landscape of prejudice and bigotry and would simply discard the past and, and, and you know, let, make, a, make a move from, uh, you know, in, in, into the future from where we are. And, and therefore, if anyone feeling nostalgic of, say, the 60s, you know, how great it was, or even the 70s or 80s, I don't know why I'm really nostalgic for the 80s, but we're saying the 60s and 70s are accused of being 70s, absolutely, yeah. nostalgic for empire. As if it's our great empire. Well, we lost that 1948, you know. I don't know how they expect anyone living in a housing estate in Burnley to, to, to um, be nostalgic for the return of Clive of India or something like that. It's so stupid, <laughs> you know. But, yeah. uh, but they're, you know, they were nostalgic for when, they, when we had this imperial greatness. In fact, when we talked to people, and this was the result of, you know, decades of research, we're not just making this up out of, you know, we're, we're proper researchers, Chris. You know, we go out and ask people, we find out what's going on. There's nostalgic for their mum's cooking. And yeah. uh, when the football team was doing a bit better and, and, and the yeah. happy memories that they have, we tend to cut out the bad memories and try to remember the happy things. And there were lots of wonderful things out that I remember going on holiday to a beautiful place in the Northumberland coast with my mum and dad. My mum died 50 of cancer and, and I have a lump in my throat now talking about it. I have yeah. beautiful memories of my mum. And that's yeah, nostalgia. I don't have any nostalgia for, for when we were, you know, um, pillaging Africa. And, 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 you know, I don't have any nostalgia for that. So they're trying to take our history away from us. 
And that's a multi-ethnic history as well, because this country has been multi-ethnic since 1948 through the 1950s. And a lot of the immigrants have, have nostalgia themselves for that sort of time. And yep. they, some of them experienced racism, and we must get rid of racism. We've got to eliminate all of that stuff. But, you know, there's some sociological studies done in, in the 60s. Nobody talks about them anymore, and there were great studies which said that the most of the studies were in places like Longbridge, you know, the car manufacturing yeah, plant, yeah. where immigrants were coming in to work. The best way of getting rid of racism and for people to realise that they're just human beings is to get them working together. Yeah, yeah. Get well, Dennis Skinner tells a great little anecdote, similarly. He was saying after the war, when he went down the pit, he said they had a lot of Poles, Lithuanians and all the rest of it. Yeah. And he said that there was no racism, he said, because everybody was in the union Everybody got the rate for the job, and there wasn't an employment agency anywhere in sight. And, you know, that a lot to be said for that, you know. Really Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a lot of being racial tensions. In the, I mean, the docks in, in, in the late 19th century, where immigrants were brought into undercut wages. Let's just yeah, be yeah. Yeah. And some immigrants are being brought in for precisely that same reason. Now, a lot of yeah. immigrants are working off the cards. They disappear into the black economy. You never see hearing about them. And they're working for very, they're being exploited. We're taking, we're taking people out of their own countries, which makes those countries poorer because it reduces consumer demand and productivity. And very Bulgaria, often, you know, of course, Bulgaria, Steve, I mean, the reason... Bulgaria lost 26% of its population yeah. in the heyday of, of, of free movement in the, in the EU because so we're impoverishing other countries, which lets the bankers off the hoop. They don't have to invest in these countries to, exactly, to build yeah. their industries. We're doing it all yeah, completely wrong. So don't deny us our history. We might be white, we might be mixed race, we might be uh, Asian or African uh, American, uh, sorry, Caribbean immigrants or, or whatever, but we have a history. And, and let us be not, let, let's remember that. Let's remember who we are. And this isn't going to stop us forming any forming solidarity because we don't form solidarity out of those memories. We form solidarity out of what we're doing now. We form solidarity exactly. in the workplace. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And of course, you know, I mean, not every in every case, but I mean, a lot of the reasons why you know people uh, seek to to move from their home. I mean, you know, it's a big wrench to leave your home. It's because of exploitation, war. That's actually being perpetrated by the same corporations and uh, and you know people in the sort of yeah. uh, you know very high mean, places yeah. that are exploiting exploiting workers. Here. Anyway, I see we've got Sean on screen and uh, for oh, the last sort of ten ten minutes or so. Sean, what's uh, what's been the reaction of, of people watching? Um, people are really enthralled by the, the conversation and the discussion. Um, they're finding it really, really interesting. We've got a few questions and comments that have come in. I just want to like, uh, just want to thank everybody who's joined in the chat tonight. Um, we do encourage people to join in and we like to hear your views. And if you do have any questions, then just put them in the chat and we, we ask the panel at the end of the show. Um, so if you enjoy what we do here, please like, subscribe click the notification bell you can even leave us a comment um, if you want us to do some different subjects or a different show you've got some suggestions please please leave those in the comments we we do love to hear from you so the first question is from darren um alevi or darren alevi yeah uh, he says uh, does steve honey have any opinions on mega projects like the belt and road initiative and does he think we can apply similar thinking here to plan for the future well the belt and road, road initiative of course is a, the chinese initiative it, it, it's um spreading its its wings across africa some people regard it as exploitative Others, I think, more sensibly regarded that some of the, the deals China's doing in Africa are certainly a lot better than the deals the Americans have uh, ever done with the country, yeah. you know, like, like Nigeria with, with the oil extraction. They're building infrastructure. Um, they're helping them to invest in, in, in their own productivity, which is good for the China because it creates a, a two-way trade. Which is better than the one-way trade that the the exploitative, extractive uh, trade that the Americans have. It, you know, I don't, want, I don't, I don't, I don't want to big up the British Empire, but the British Empire wasn't very nice at all. But at least we did put some infrastructure in, yeah, and in places like India, we'd put railroads in, and, and, and administration. Um, I think the Chinese are doing it better. I, I, nobody knows whether this is going to be exploitative or whether this is just going to be genuine two-way trade. 
Um, but let's hope that it is. And I think that we could do this if we had control of investment. Again, it's all about control of investment. We could invest in some of these countries, help them to develop their own clean energy sources, help them to become more productive, which would change the terms and the nature of the trade between, between ourselves and them. They could start manufacturing stuff more like Taiwan do with bicycle frames, for instance, and we import them in this country to, to, to assemble. We could have deals like this. We could have deals. I think that Peter Mullen's book um, that we quote in, in ours, where he talks about allowing countries to specialize in various agricultural and industrial products and to sort out um, two-way, um, uh, you know, what, what, we, what we call bilateral in, in, in the technical terms, uh, uh, bilateral trade deals with, with, with nations would be a very good idea because if we're going to move in the green economy, we'll have to shorten supply chains. The capitalists have known since the year 2000 that the carping plastic crap over the Indian Ocean from China isn't, isn't making enough money. That's why they expanded the derivatives market because profits were falling. Good old Marxist uh, decline rate of profit was was affecting yeah. them. So we, if we can help other countries to develop their own agricultural industrial products to, to specialize, and we start specializing in a few, we could sell energy to the rest of Europe. You know, we have this huge coastline for, for wind farms, and, and, and there's a debate about you know the Chinese are building a new thorium nuclear reactor every fortnight right now. Thorium's yeah. clean energy. Yeah, um, uh, we can we can use uh, you know we can do we, we can do anything we want. We can do anything we want. Economies are about real resources and labor and skills. That's all they're about. They're not about banks and finance and inflation and accounts. And they're not about that. They're about what we can actually do. And if we can um, return to that, uh, you know, there, there's a blog, very good blog called the Real Real Economics. If we can return to Real Economics, the economics of reality then we can do something similar. And there's nothing to prevent us to having healthy ch trade relationships with China. I think Chinese will be rather worried that we might stop because they're export dependent at the moment. Mm. But of course, um, if they help other countries to, to, to develop their productivity, they'll become less export dependent and, and be able to, to, to um, set up bilateral deals with the, uh, other, other nations that join the BRICS, um, the BRICS uh, or what we're gonna call it, a trade block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just, just, I mean, on the point, on your point about real resources, of course, uh, Stephen, that's, that's very much a kind of, uh, you know, call the stone of the whole kind of MMT uh, agenda, but the acknowledgement is, of, yeah, of, yeah. of, of, of uh, you know, uh, the important thing is, you know, the kind of availability of real, real resources. But Sean, any, any other comments at all? Yeah, yeah. Um, CA says, uh, how do you protect a political party against infiltration and hijacking by middle class professionals, particularly when working class people might have aspirations to become more educated and professional themselves, <laughs> paradoxically? Oh, that's the, yeah. That's the $64 million question. I remember when the steelworks closed in 1980, because I was a musician, um, professional musician at the time. We set up a music project it's teaching um, young kids how to play instruments, how to set up sound desks, how to do sound reinforcement, all these technical trades, everything from playing the piano to, to printing, screen printing T-shirts. And within a few weeks, the middle classes start moving in from Durham University. Oh, I can get you this amount of funding if you do it this way. I can, you know, they start moving and infiltrating straight away. Yeah. It became a How do you stop it? Sean, I don't know the name of the, but I have to just put my hands up and say, I just don't know how you stop these people. They're relentless because it's the way they earn their living. Mm. It's it's that's what they do. They run things, and they brought they're brought up to believe that they're capable and competent to run things. And some are, some are. Let's be honest, some some are quite good. I mean, Atlee was great, as long as they had people like Bevan and, and, and the two Bevans and, and the rest of them side telling him what what was necessary. He went and fixed it. You need fixing. Yeah, really raising fix political consciousness is one of the keys, though, isn't it? I think to uh, you know, I mean, what I was quite hopeful because John Trickett was when when Jeremy first got elected. I mean, John was supposed to be it never ever happened in the end. Uh, organizing uh, a rolling program of what they call political assemblies, and they were going to be you know talking about economics. Although obviously, I don't think it was going to be Corbyn obviously going to be talking about, but you know, but they were going to try and take this sort of thing at this kind of roadshow around and. You know, and I think the trade union movement could be could be playing a role, couldn't they? I mean, shouldn't they be engaged in political education in a way in which you know raising consciousness well, and 
I'm more than they're doing. I know some have done that in the past, but I mean, you know, they've just been doing enough of it today. I don't know what you think about that. Well, they're not, but I think they lost too many members in, in private industry. The, the, you know, the trade union movement is, is, is very much concerned with the public sector True. and the bigger industries like rail. And um, there are people now in the private sector who, who you know, we, we, we've regressed 100 years here. They're scared to join a union. They don't want to. Oh, yeah. You get a job when the Americans, Walmart, were in charge of Asda. They showed a video to, to all new starters about how awful unions are, why they don't need one. And you're not an employee, you're a colleague. You're a colleague, yeah. Asda colleague. So there's, they have these, you know, we're up against a very, very big, powerful monster here in neoliberalism. And um, as, I, as I said before, I, th I think the essential first starting block is to start building a coherent, counter narrative keeping it simple keeping it economically grounded what can we do and we have to be quasi nationalistic about it and again problem is you get jumped on as soon as you know the nation state is is the currency issue so we need to start at the level of the nation state that's just yeah. a fact it's got nothing to do with how xenophobic i am about, about no 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 it's just a fact that the, well, the one good thing that uh, gordon brown did probably the only good thing is to keep probably to keep us out of the bloody euro you know uh, but anyway well he did that that would have been i mean the euro's a disaster it's effectively you 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 owe debt in foreign currency with the of course yeah, they relegate nation states to the to the status of a local authority effectively because you're, you're not control of your own you know yeah. uh, economy Greece had been in control of its own currency it yes dropped, dropped it a bit flood the place with tourists again on cheap holidays get their economy going again and that's a completely different story i've a so lot of time been, for yanis Farrell Farofakis, but I could never understand. Maybe it was sort of pressures on him. Why he, uh, yeah. you know, he continued to support the membership of the Euro. It seems to be a bonkers. But anyway, there well, are, I, I, I know people who. Well, I better not say anything. But I, I think that he, he, he I, I don't think he, he was supporter of Europe. He just, he just thought that if you go against the EU, then you're labelled as a nationalist, and he didn't want. Oh to yeah, know. yeah, I know, I know those pressures. I, I appreciate, it. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Sean, let's just have uh, one or two more, then we're probably better yeah. wrap it up. Just one more now. question uh, from Katie Marshall. She says, "I've managed to get my niece on my wavelength. How do I reach her friends? I've got her reading Parenti and Mark Fisher now. What other books would you recommend for myself and her?" Um, well, apart from ours, of course, um, just read. Yeah, get this one. <laughs> this one. <laughs> read, read Fatsy and Mitchell, Reclaiming the State, and read anything by the great Michael Hudson. Read anything by Michael Hudson. Michael Hudson's the best economist we have. He's mm. not entirely um, an MMT um, aficionado, but, but he does support the, the basics of MMT with one or two caveats. Would you um, recommend uh, Would you recommend uh, the deficit myth as well, uh, Deficit For anyone who wants to do a, a very good, lucid and, and comprehensible understanding, but get Michael Hudson's book um, and forgive them their debts. It, it, it's an incredible, um, uh, it's an incredible helicopter ride through history from the Bronze Age to the present to to, to outline this. What the mainstream, I think the Marxists got it slightly wrong. The class struggle exists, but there's a deeper struggle underneath the class struggle, and that is the struggle between creditor and debtor. Mm. Between those who can lend out money, those who have the, re the resources uh, to, to uh, act as collateral to lend that money, and those who owe that money back. Mm. Even There's another book which, which is not out yet, which I uh, would recommend. Um, it should be published later this month or maybe. Uh, next, uh, and that's called Fiat Socialism. And this is all about how you can uh, essentially apply modern monetary theory to deliver a socialist uh, program. So that, that's due out this month or, or next. Absolutely. So, uh, and if anyone uh, wants to d dive into MMT, the real technical details, there's a, there's a book out, Edward Elgar Press, written by um, MMT. Um, uh, thinkers Warren Mosler and, and Bill yeah. Mitchell and all the rest of them. I can't remember the name of it. I've got on the. Uh, I've got on. If on, you on, if you can think of it, uh, Steve, uh, uh, send us a message. And when, when we post this this link out, because people watch it afterwards rather than just live, uh, we can actually put that in the in the uh, in the link so they can uh, you know access that as well. 
Phil, Phil Mullen's right. stuff, yeah, Phil Mullen's stuff also re worth a read on 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 um, international relations and, uh, and economics. Yeah, right. Well, listen, Steve, we've got an hour. We could go back two or three hours, mate. It's really, really interesting. Uh, we really enjoyed uh, talking to you this evening. Oh, well, um, let me thank you for for taking the time out to to speak to us this evening. I really, as I say, enjoyed it. And uh, thank you, everybody, for watching tonight. Please buy this book and share it around. It's really, really important. It's very, very – look, I can read it. I ain't no intellectual. I'm just an expert player. I found – it was a page turner, mate. It really – We tried very, very really hard to make it accessible. We tried very well, well, well you've, but we tried well, very in my, in my opinion, you've definitely succeeded, mate. So oh, uh, it's brilliant. Yeah. Well, thanks again, mate. Anyway, uh, and as I say, thanks, everybody, for watching. Uh, hopefully, we'll be back next week uh, to the same time on Resistance TV. So until then, this is Chris Williams to say bye for now. Thank you.